welcome to the third Mel Cusin Lecture on National Security. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. But, but before we begin our program with our guests, Charlie Kupchin and uh, Professor Jim Hollifield, let me just take a few minutes um, with you to remember our friend Mel Cusin. Mel passed away, gee, now I guess it's just about two years ago. He was 92 years old, full of optimism, talking about how we were gonna celebrate his centennial birthday. But before we think about uh, and remember Mel, let me just go over some quick housekeeping notes. I know all of you are by now very well familiar with the Zoom platform, but uh, to put in a question, to ask your question, just go ahead and type it into the Q&A box. Also really wanna thank our sponsors. It makes such a difference for the World Affairs Council to have good supporters like Ray and Dion Termini, Joel Schweitzer and the American Jewish Committee. An additional support was provided tonight in memory of Mickey Wertheimer and Eileen Lipsick. Also wanna thank our partner organizations. We have many members tonight that are joining us from the Council on Foreign Relations and we're always grateful to their support. And I know that we have a large contingent from Raytheon who are in our audience as well. We hope that you'll purchase a copy of Dr. Kupchin's book, I'm holding my copy right here, Isolationism, a history of America's efforts to shield itself from the world. And you can purchase Isolationism at Interabang Books. Just go to interabangbooks.com and type in the code DFWWORLD to get 10% off on Isolationism, as well as any books that might be in your shopping cart. But remember, at least at this point, your 10% discount is only good on online purchases. I know that this book would have been one that Mel would have had in his library. Mel made his presence known in so many ways, and he really did leave so many legacies. Foremost, he was especially proud of being the founder of the International Perspective Series, co-sponsored by the American Jewish Committee and the World Affairs Council, which each year for now almost a quarter of a century, as he would say, brought the brightest minds to Dallas to talk about key important foreign policy issues facing the United States. And so it is especially fitting that I mentioned the first program of the 2021 IPS series that's gonna take place next week on Thursday, February 4th at 6 p.m. The topic is climate and security 2021. What have we learned and how can we move forward with Sherry Goodman? She's a senior fellow at the Wilson Center. I'm also really pleased to say that Haynes and Boone signed up today to be the presenting sponsor for all of our IPS programs in 2021. So thank you to all the associates and partners of Haynes and Boone for your support. Many of you know that I'll be stepping down in two weeks as president and CEO of the World Affairs Council. And one of the things that I'm particularly pleased about is that the Mel Cusin lecture will remain a pillar of our annual programming. Those of you who knew Mel remember that his eyes would shine when he recounted a recent trip to DC where he would be hosted by past speakers of the IPS programs. To him, visiting Brookings, the Wilson Center, or other think tanks would be like a, a young little leaguer going to Camden Yards or Wrigley Field. Our first Cusin lecturer was Michael McFall, former US ambassador, of course, to Russia, now a fellow at the Hoover Institute. He was followed by Michael O'Hanlon, senior fellow at Brookings, and tonight, Dr. Charlie, Charles Kupchin. Mel would say about this, quite a lineup. 
So now what I'd like to do is ask a very good friend of Mel and the council's Ray Termini uh, to be followed by Jim Hollifield, the director of the Tower Center at SMU to share a few thoughts about Mel. And I know that Charlie will have some memories too. So with that, Ray, I turn the program over to you. Thanks, Jim. You know, after a successful business career and active civic leadership, while in his 70s, Mel now had the time to pursue his interest in global affairs. In the 20 plus years that Mel led the International Perspective Series, he had the amazing ability to select topics months in advance that would prove to be of global significance at the time the lecture was given. In his later years, when planning for his retirement as director of IPS, he shared with me his tricks of the trade in making the IPS program so popular. These tricks included not only choosing topics that would be pertinent several months in the future, but also in selecting speakers who could make the topics interesting. He particularly wanted speakers with good communication skills, such as professors who are, who are now, who are popular with their students, writers who know how to engage their readers, and people who have served in the diplomatic corps. As friends of Mel will attest, we appreciated his passion in pursuing learning and discovering intellectual challenges. This search for learning included his travel to the UK each year with his dear companion, Sally Unger, to attend classes at Oxford. We also enjoyed our discussions with him on a vast range of topics. Mel was writing a book at the time of his death about his experiences in World War II. I was fortunate to read a chapter. It is too bad that he was not able to complete it. We could have had him as an IPS speaker. Mel became friends with many of the speakers of IPS, including today's speaker. He was an ardent supporter of the World Affairs Council, as well as the Center for Presidential History and the John Tower Center for Political Studies, both at SMU. Many of these leaders became close friends of Mel, including Jim Hollifeld, the director of the Tower Center who joins us today. Please welcome Jim. Thank you, Ray and Jim Falk for reminiscing a little bit about Mel. Um, it was my enormous pleasure to count Mel among close friend um, and his uh, uh, late wife, Barbara, uh, and of course his companion, Sally, as well, um, and, and the family, you know, David, uh, Cousin, um, uh, Melanie, uh, Gary, Michael, these were people I got to know over the years and Mel never missed a program. He was always there front and center. Uh, I know Professor Kupchin, I'm going to introduce him in just a moment, um, came here many times uh, at the invitation of Mel uh, and uh, with extraordinary exchanges about what's going on in the world, what's happening in US policy. Um, um, and Mel was, you know, we were talking about his great martinis, you know, the martinis he would make and serve at his home. But let me, in the interest of time, let me segue fairly quickly here to talk about Professor Kupchin. I think, as I said, he's no stranger to Dallas, uh, having come many times to speak in the series. Uh, not only is he a professor at Georgetown at the School of Foreign Service, 
uh, and, a, and a widely published author. I would say that Professor Kupchin is not an armchair theorist. Uh, he has served uh, in the National Security Council under two administrations. So he's had a lot of experience in American foreign policy. And he has written um, what I can only describe as a sort of magnum opus here. If you, if you have even a passing interest in American foreign policy, I mean, this is the book for you. And he's tackling an extraordinarily complex topic, isolationism, which many people see as a, a sort of pejorative term. And I'm sure he's going to explain to us what, what he means by that. Uh, so you, you've got to look at this book. Uh, it is a tour de force and um, uh, one of the greatest uh, histories I've seen of American foreign policy. So on that note, uh, why don't we turn, turn the program over now to Professor Kupchin. So we have lots of time for questions. I'm gonna keep an eye on the Q&A. Uh, I will ask a few questions of him, uh, but um, uh, Professor Kupchin, why don't you start and tell us what, what motivated you to write this book and uh, uh, you know, what's the passion that's behind it? Uh, thanks, Jim, for the very kind introduction and, and um, uh, overly, overly uh, uh, nice comments about the book. And thanks to Jim and, and Ray and Rachel and, and, and the others who put this program together. Before I jump to the book, I'd, like, I'd just like to add a word about Mel, since uh, we're here in some respects to, to honor him. Uh, I don't recall when my first trip to Dallas was to speak at, at the World Affairs Council. I'm going to guess it was around 20 years ago. And I'm pretty sure it was on that first visit that Mel and Barbara opened their house up to me. Uh, so I had an immediate taste of not just Texas hospitality, but Cusan hospitality. And I do remember those famous martinis. Uh, they're, they're really good. Uh, but anyway, uh, after that evening, and I think we had a, a long dinner afterward, you know, uh, the, the deal was sealed. Uh, Mel and I had become fast friends. We had bonded. And we really did stay in touch, regular touch, over the next couple of decades. And as you said, Jim, I've, I've been out to speak on several occasions. When Mel would come to Washington, I would see him. In fact, I had the good fortune to have dinner with Sally and Mel. Uh, I think it was around Memorial Day of, of 2018. We went to a fish restaurant. We sat in the corner where it was a little bit quieter because Mel's hearing uh, at times was a little, uh, a little spotty. Uh, and for the first time, he told me about his World War II experiences. I had not heard those stories before and I was bowled over. Ordinary. Uh, so, uh, but I, I really cherish that I was able to spend that evening with, with Mel and, uh, and Sally. Uh, those images, those stories stick with me to this day. And I learned a lot from Mel over the years. I learned a lot about Texas. I learned a lot about history. I learned a lot about life. And I learned a lot about decency mm -hmm. because Mel was a mensch uh, in, every, in every sense of the word. And finally, I also learned a lot about Chile. <laughs> which is something I didn't know a lot about. And in honor of Mel, my wife and now, now have a tradition of having chili on Super Bowl Sunday. So it's about to happen. And here it is, as you can probably see, the devil's own chili. We keep a big stock of Mel's chili powder and we roll it out at least once a year on, on Super Bowl Sunday. 
So it's a real pleasure and a real honor for me to, uh, to speak in this lecture series. I know that there's nothing that would may, make Mel happier than for good friends to come together to discuss the big foreign policy issues of the day. So I've spoken my piece. Uh, now let me just say a few things about, about the book. Um, Jim, I, um, <clears throat> I started thinking about writing a book on American isolationism in the 1990s after the Berlin Wall came down, when I noticed that the American public was losing interest in foreign policy. In the print media, broadcast media, coverage was falling off a cliff. I was in the NSC in the 90s, and Clinton really didn't want to get involved in the Balkans. Uh, one could just sense this, this shrinkage. Uh, and that's when I first said, you know, maybe this robust internationalism that I grew up with, that you grew up with. Uh, and I, I went to grad school in the 1980s. I started teaching at the late 80s. So, you know, I was around during the Cold War and we were unstintingly, unflinchingly ready to go out and, and run the world. And that's what I began to think in the 90s, you know, maybe that won't last. And then we had 9-11. And then we had the reaction to 9-11, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I said, well, maybe I won't write a book about the inward turn. But then slowly but surely, the reaction against the so-called forever wars mounted. And one began to detect that Americans were indeed tired of exertions abroad. And that's when I embarked on this book. And then I knew I was headed in the right direction on January uh, 2017, when I'm listening to Donald Trump's inaugural address, and he says, it's going to be America first. Mm -hmm. And my head explodes because I'm, I'm in there reading about America first in 1940, 1941, fighting to keep the United States out of, of World War II. And so in many respects, Trump was not so much a break, a bolt from the blue, but a return to earlier traditions in American statecraft. And uh, I have to say, as someone who spent the last five years or so of my life steeped in American history, the isolationism, the unilateralism, the protectionism, the racism in American statecraft, that is all part and parcel of America from the beginning, from the 1780s, right up until 1941. And we can come back to this during the discussion, but I, I take that period as being the first big era. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Of American foreign policy, the era of isolationism, when we were engaged abroad economically, engaged abroad culturally, our missionaries were roaming all over the place but we did not want to extend our strategic reach beyond North America until 1898 and beyond uh, Western Hemisphere thereafter. In other words, we essentially tried to run away from the world 
in large part because we believed that doing so was necessary to protect the American experiment. Beginning with Pearl Harbor, we flipped to the opposite extreme. We believe that we need to run the world to expand and share the American experiment. And that's the long run of what we now call liberal internationalism. The punchline of my book, and I'll, I'll stop here so that we can start our conversation, is that what we're witnessing today and what Trump began is really the third era in American statecraft. And it will not be today under Biden a return to pre-Trump, to liberal internationalism. I think it will be some amalgam, some blend of early American statecraft and Cold War and post-Cold War statecraft. That is to say, we will need to find a new middle ground between isolationism and liberal internationalism. We will need to step back, but not step away. And I think this kind of right-sizing of American foreign policy is inevitable because as I said, Americans are tired of what many people believe is overreach. And our domestic agenda today is so pressing. The pandemic, the economy, healthcare, jobs, that it seems to me it's gonna be very hard to return to the unstinting internationalism that came before Trump. So that to me is the big challenge that Joe Biden faces, to find the middle ground between doing too little and doing too much. Well, Charlie, uh, I have to give you credit. You've, you've, you're aiming for the golden mean here, <laughs> splitting the difference. Um, we know the world is not always quite that simple and it doesn't cooperate. And I, I wanna play devil's advocate in a moment. I'll come back to that, my devil's advocate question. But there's one term that caught my eye in your book. You keep talking about an exemplar versus a redeemer. Uh, can you tell uh, our audience what you mean by that, that this, this, these two sides of American foreign policy? Well, you know, we have been living in an America in which the exceptionalist mantra has been key in shaping our engagement abroad, right? I think you could find every president until Donald Trump from Roosevelt through Obama who has said, we have a, an exceptional role. We're a cherished nation. We're a chosen nation. We have to go out in the world and bring democracy and stability and peace. And that's new. And for most of American history, the exceptionalist narrative was about being an example, not a crusader. And if you go back and you look at the founders and the debates of the 19th century right up until World War II, the general refrain was that ambition abroad would come at the expense of liberty and prosperity at home. That if we went out in search of monsters to destroy, to use the words of John Quincy Adams, we would imperil liberty, prosperity, and risk tyranny. And it's that kind of sense that America would best be off by staying out of trouble abroad that informed the long run of isolationism that began with the founders and that continued into the, to the 20th century. And part of the reason that isolationism had such a strong pull on the American electorate is that it came in different flavors. 
So for New Englanders, it was about enlightenment philosophy and pacifism. Mm -hmm. For Southerners, it was about libertarianism and avoiding a strong federal government. Mm -hmm. For both Southerners and at times Northerners, it was about avoiding expansion to areas in which there were no whites. Most Americans were uncomfortable going into Cuba or Puerto Rico or the Latin America because they did not want to integrate more non-whites into the body politics. So racism played a role. That all begins to change, as I said, with World War II. And that's when we really flip from being an exemplar. We will change the world by the power of our example to a crusader. We will change the world through our power. Well, let me, um, as I said, I want to play devil's advocate just a minute and, and drill down. Uh, in, in you and I both teach international relations. You know, I teach international political economy here. And there, there's been a very standard argument in this field for decades. Uh, it's called hegemonic stability theory. It's a big, long term there. But to translate that for the audience, it simply means if the US doesn't get out there and lead, and organize the world, uh, someone else will, another power will, because as we know, um, uh, power abhors a vacuum. You know, there is, so how do you respond to those like our friend John Eikenberry, for example, at Princeton, who would say, we've got to get back to this leadership role. If we abandon uh, this liberal world and leave it to its own devices and pull back to this hemisphere, we're just asking for trouble. Well, as you said, um, isolationism is still a dirty word. Yes. Uh, and it came into common usage as a pejorative yeah. to direct against Americans, both in the early part of the 20th century, but especially in the 30s and after World War II, who counseled staying out of trouble abroad. And one of the things I wanted to say in the book is, Yes, we made egregious errors in the 20s and in the 30s by doing the opposite of what you just said, Jim. You know, the, the world needed American power and America was nowhere to be found. In the 19th century, however, isolationism did serve the country well. And that's because we were able to push Europe's imperial powers one by one out of the Western Hemisphere. And we were able to focus like a laser on domestic development rather than on colonies and battleships. So I think it's safe to say that isolationism in the 19th century allowed the United States to rise in unmolested fashion. Mm -hmm. And I think there is still wisdom to the idea that under some circumstances, the US is safer and more secure by not engaging. And I think I would, as an example, I would say our efforts to turn Afghanistan into and Iraq into Ohio have not gone terribly well. Uh, we overreached. Um, uh, so what, I'm, what I counsel in the end of the book is not pulling out of global affairs. We need to stay the protector and the great power arbiter of last resort. But one of the things that worries me, and, and you've probably seen many of the articles that I'm gonna refer to, Jim, is that many of our colleagues Many of our smart and learned colleagues are saying, come home, America. 
get out of Europe, get out of East Asia, become an offshore balancer. And one of the messages that I'm saying is no, we still need to stay put in Europe and Asia, but we need to avoid the wars of choice that have led to overreach. We need to think more carefully about our trade agenda so that it works more for Americans, uh, especially in the heartland that have lost jobs to trade with China. And so the message that I'm trying to send here is not, I don't believe in hegemonic stability theory. I, don't, I still believe in American leadership and multilateralism, but I do worry that the American public as well as elites are losing faith in American statecraft and that we need to pull back to stay put. We need to trim our sails in order to make sure that our grand strategy continues to support, continues to enjoy the support of the American people. Yeah, there's always been a, uh, uh, a reluctance or reticence to talk about America as an imperial power, as you know. And you know, we could go back to Professor Ferguson's writings about this. Um, um, uh, but um, is the United States, you know, ha have we been guilty of imperial overstretch here, do you think, that we've really gone too far? Uh, you know, as Paul Kennedy said, uh, and you're counseling that we should pull back. Um, why is it so hard for us to pull back? You know, both Obama and Trump, you know, have wanted to get us out of these endless wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Middle East, but we seem to be unwilling to do that, unwilling to disengage. So what's going on here? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, I'll start off with a, with a little historical story and then I'll, I'll jump to the present. The, the answer to your question about is America an empire is no but. <laughs> okay. uh, and I say but because we did try it, right? Over the long stretch of the 19th century, we stayed out of, of uh, the affairs of others. We used our Navy to go after pirates. We defended the interests of traders around the world, but we refused to take on strategic commitments of an enduring nature. That all starts to change in the 1890s. I would say with the exception of the Western Hemisphere. Well, that really doesn't start until 1898, right? We, 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 we would go on a raid, we would stick our schnoz in other people's business and then we'd go home. Well, don't tell that to Mexico. I mean, the Mexicans- Oh, oh, they, oh yeah, yeah. I forgot to, to say that we, we took a big chunk of Mexican territory uh, along the way. And, and many people probably don't know this, we repeatedly tried to invade and annex Canada yes. and we failed. And we tried in 1867 after the end of the civil war to convince the British to give Canada to us as compensation for the warships that they had given to the Confederacy. And yes, the, 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 the British told us to stick it. Uh, but that's a, that's, a, that's a separate historical aside. But in, 18, in the 1890s, we start building battleships. Our light bulb goes on. And then President McKinley in 1898 says, we need to liberate Cuba from the, Span from the Spanish because there's a bloody repression going on there. And what happens? 
not only do we kick the, the, the Spanish out of Cuba, but we effectively colonize Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Hawaii, Guam, Samoa, and the Wake Islands. And a huge insurgency breaks out in the Philippines. Thousands of Americans are killed. Hundreds of thousands of Filipinos are killed. And the American public says, what the hell is going on here? You told us we were not an empire and suddenly we've got all of these overseas possessions that were ruling with a boot. And that leads to a backlash and really the end of our short detour into imperialism. Now, uh, on the question of why we have had such trouble getting out, uh, I, I think there are several things going on. And, you know, when I watched this in person under President Obama, because we would sit around in the, in the situation room and he was really the, the beginning of this effort to shrink the American footprint. He desperately wanted out of Iraq and Afghanistan. He did not believe that these wars were working to American advantages. And you may remember what his bumper sticker was when he ran for re-election. It's time for nation building here at home. In other words, we need schools in Arkansas, not in Afghanistan. Now, I, part of the reason that I think Trump ran on a neo-isolationist platform and then became a, a neo-isolationist in office is frustration with, uh, with uh, the fact that it has been so hard to get out of the Middle East. And part of it is because the Middle East won't let go. Mm -hmm. The Taliban came back, the Islamic State has come back. And part of it is the military. And, you know, I, I, I was, I was sitting in the, in, the, in the situation room when John Kerry and Samantha Power and leaders in the, of the Pentagon would, would bang their fists on the table and say, no, no, we're America. You know, we, we, can't, we can't pull out of, of Syria. Mm -hmm. And so you sometimes have to make very tough decisions to stay out of conflicts, even if you feel that doing so is morally iffy. Uh, but the but the opposite hasn't done us any good. If you have to, if you say, are we on balance in better shape for having toppled Saddam Hussein, for having toppled Gaddafi? I think it's hard to answer that question with a yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to ask. So, uh, go ahead. I, I want to turn a little so, bit. Yeah. To questions now from the audience and try to work sure. some of them in. The first one I have up is from my colleague here, uh, Professor Takayuchi, Takayuchi Sensei, who's a great scholar of East Asia. And, and he, he wants to know about the pejorative nature of isolationism. You have identified it with a kind of hyper-American nationalism, a protectionism. We, we probably haven't talked enough about the economic um, uh, uh, expression of, of isolationism. And you also said you very much identify it with racism. So uh, he wanted to know more about why you, you link isolationism with racism and nativism. There is no logical connection between isolationism and racism. Isolationism, as I define it in the American context, is simply a strategic doctrine that says, we as a nation should not extend our strategic reach beyond the mothership, right? 
we should stay home and tend our own garden. Mm -hmm. And some people would say, well, the US was never isolationist because we expanded westward. Mm -hmm. And we tromped on Native Americans on the way. And we grabbed a big chunk of Mexico on the way. And that's all true. But we also stopped when we got to the Pacific coast and decided not to become a global power until the end of, of the 19th century. That's, that is how I define the isolationist experience. Now in practice, it was uh, attached to and intermingled with identity politics in the following respects. One, I mentioned American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism was in part about the people who populated the colonies. It was about white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And when the United States expanded westward, it did so in step with white settlement. Mm -hmm. In fact, after the, the Louisiana Purchase was, was made, Jefferson did not integrate it into the Union because he wanted to wait until there were more uh, uh, individuals who had come across from, from the British Isles. One of the reasons we did not expand prior to the Civil War was there was no agreement on whether you could uh, make new, new expansion outside the continental US free or slave. Yep. And then, as I mentioned, after the Civil War, we couldn't agree on whether it was desirable to bring non-whites into the body politic. Mm -hmm. And then finally, it also takes on a very strong <clears throat> anti-immigrant tinge. Mm -hmm. beginning in the 19th century, when we begin to pass legislation that prevented Asians from entering the United States. And then it really peaks after World War I, when there was a surge of anti-immigrant sentiment that led to the 1924 Immigration Pact, which decreased immigrants from Southeastern Europe, Jews and Catholics in particular, by 90%. And so in that respect, isolationism and anti-immigrant sentiment did go together in American history. There's a question um, on the table here from uh, Dion Termini, uh, which is, uh, I think she's related to Ray Termini, who's on the call here. But Dion was wondering if the proponents of isolationism, uh, are, are, they, are they different today than the proponents of isolationism 100 years ago or 150 years ago? Uh, what about the, uh, the, the supporters, the, the architects, the theorists of isolationism? Has this shifted at all in the past 150 or 200 years? Well, I think that I would divide, divide it into, into kind of the, the, the political isolationists and the intellectual isolationists, if you would. Um, you know, I think if you, if you look at, at Trump, and you know, he, he's a very complicated individual in the sense that he was in part isolationist, but in, in part um, quite, quite uh, I don't know what the word would be, not internationalist, but you know, he, he was re ready to use military force and, and invested in the military. But there, I think there's a huge amount of overlap with earlier versions of isolationism because of the, the strong strains of unilateralism, because of his aversion to alliances, because of his aversion 
to free trade. And the United States was protectionist until after World War II, going back to the founding era and the nativism, where like in earlier parts of American history, he intermingled identity politics with hostility to engagement. So, so it really is almost back to the future here. Could you remind our listeners where the term America First comes from? Yeah, the America First Committee was founded in 1940 to block Roosevelt from getting more involved in World War II by giving aid to the Allies, first under cash and carry, and then what came to be called Lend-Lease. And every step of the way from 39, right up until the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt was fighting a pitched battle with the America First Committee. And had it not been for the Japanese attack, it is not at all clear that we would have entered World War II. Roosevelt is remembered as a great wartime leader, but he was very much in the isolationist mainstream over the 30s. And even after 1939, he didn't want to enter the war. He wanted to give assistance to the British to keep the British from falling because he feared that if the British fell, the Nazis would eventually come after us. Yeah, and it, it is really so bad that Mel is not here to listen to this because there was a young Mel Cousin who was in at the University of Texas, I believe, uh, who eventually was, was drafted or volunteered and went into the, to the war. And Mel would be one of those who would be and the spearhead of this change. But there's a question also on the table here from Laura Hoon. And it is, she wants to know why was our reaction um, uh, so different after World War I compared to World War II? You know, what, what, what's the difference between these two turning points? We reject the League of Nations and then we become the architect for creating the UN. What's the difference here? Excellent, excellent question. You know, after World War, or after the War of 1898, Wilson learned the lesson from McKinley's failures that Americans don't wanna be an empire. They don't believe in imperialism. They don't like power politics. And so he took the country to war on a purely idealist platform. Mm -hmm. He didn't talk about US interests. He talked about saving the world for democracy. I would encourage all of you to go read tonight, tomorrow, his address to Congress in April of 1917, requesting a declaration of war. There is not one whiff of realism or national interest. It's all idealism. And he did the same thing with the League of Nations. He attempted to seal, to sell this as America's moment has arrived. We are, we are finally delivering on the promise to bring manifest destiny to the world and spread Republican ideals and peace. And Americans didn't buy it. They weren't ready for that kind of engagement. Republicans that rejected the League were generally internationalist, but they were fiercely unilateralist. Mm -hmm. And the big difference between the Roosevelt era and the Wilson era is that Roosevelt learned from Wilson's mistakes and he made internationalism as much about interests as about uh, values. He, He mingled the two, power plus partnership. And the other very important thing here is that Roosevelt was very conscious of building a bipartisan compact. Wilson 
was deeply partisan. He went after the Republicans. He didn't include any Republicans in building the League of Nations. They hated Wilson. Roosevelt reached across the aisle and he more than anybody is responsible for building that stable, moderate bipartisan center that lasted really from the Roosevelt administration right through the end of the Cold War and, and arguably up until the, 20, uh, the 21st century. So Henry Cabot Lodge was very differ different from Arthur Vandenberg. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> very. Well, there are a couple of questions on the table here, uh, I think that go together. And you, you, I think you, you remember like I do after World War II, um, one of the mottos was let's have peace through trade. You know, if we can just engage with the world economically, we'll have interdependence. This will make the world a more peaceful place and the U.S. can lead with this. So one of the questions is, wouldn't trade liberalization today, you know, bring us back to a more peaceful world? Uh, and another question on the table here is, well, what about China and the rise of China? So could you tell us a little bit about more about the economic side of, of, of isolationism? Sure. You know, as I said, the, the U.S. was a trading nation from the beginning. A sizable portion of our national wealth depended upon the trade with, Latin, with uh, the Caribbean and across the Atlantic. And the founders were of the mind that you just described, Jim. They believed that we should have political connections with no one, commercial connections with everyone, because they believed that political connections would get in the way of trade. And if you go back and you look at the model treaty of 1776 that Congress drafted to guide US statecraft, it said, let's trade with everybody. Let's have trade deals with everybody. Let's have no alliances. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell a quick story because I think this is, a, this is emblematic of the period. You know, we weren't doing very well in the Revolutionary War. In fact, we were getting our butts kicked by the British. And the founders said, you know what? We do not want an alliance, but if we don't form one with the French, we're going to lose. Yep. Yep. So they formed the alliance with the French. The French came over and we won. And we became an independent federation. In 1793, France and Britain go to war again. And the king of France has George Washington on his speed dial and he calls George and he says, Georges, remember the alliance of 1778? We're at war with Britain again. How many ships and how many planes are you gonna send across the Atlantic? What does George do? He hangs up and he issues the proclamation of neutrality in which he basically says to the French, good night and good luck. You are on your own. So the much United for States did not form another military alliance until after World War II. Mm -hmm. So that's just a, a sense of the degree to which they said, we're a trading nation, we wanna trade with everybody. And if we form alliances, it will only get in the way of trade. So let's not do it. Now, just a final comment on that. Um, I, I don't buy that. I don't believe in the commercial piece. I think we know from history that you got to get the geopolitics right and not just uh, the trade right. Mm -hmm. um, on the China question, you want you want to? Yeah, there are a couple. There are a couple of big China questions, yeah. and I'll, I'll, I want to come back to that in just a moment. But there's one other question about economics, and 
it has to do with buy American. You know, how, how does this fit into the isolationist mindset? And we've already seen that the new Biden administration is, is heading down this path. You know, he wants a buy America policy in place. So how, how does how does buy America fit into this? Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to say something um, <laughs> kind and positive about about Donald Trump. Um, my, uh, my kids in the background. Sorry about that. Um, just one second. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Sorry about the pause. Um, you know, I think that Donald Trump tapped into a powerful strain in the American electorate that basically said, too much world, not enough America. Too many wars, too much free trade, too many immigrants, too many PACs, too much them and not enough us. And I think that Trump was an astute politician in sensing that that was the case. And I think Obama sensed it as well. He just responded differently. Biden, in my, in my mind, understands that Trump was onto something. Mm -hmm. And that right now, our first, second, third, fourth, and fifth priorities really has to be about fixing the home front. It has to be about the pandemic and jobs and infrastructure and green technology and manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that our foreign policy needs to take a back seat and, and in many respects to help us repair the country uh, here, here at home. And so, you know, in, in that respect, I do think that we are headed into a period in which domestic policy is going to get uh, the needed focus that it deserves. And that's one of the reasons that I think we are headed into an era where we do need to pare back our foreign ambition. Because in the end of the day, we do have trade-offs to make. And at least for now, one of the things we've learned from the Trump era is we have big problems at home that we need to solve. Otherwise, the Trump era may end up being the new normal. Yeah, I, I want to wrap a, a few other questions together because we don't have a whole lot of time left. But, but I want to press you on one issue, and that is has to do with the consensus or lack of consensus about what we're doing in our foreign policy. And you and I grew up, we grew up during the Cold War. Uh, it really helps if you have a, a heavily armed nuclear enemy and a threat from the outside. Nothing unites you, you know, like the fear of, 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 a, of a powerful enemy. Um, so we, we obviously lost that uh, consensus in the 1990s. It fell apart precisely as the Cold War ended. Uh, do you think, and, and there's one question here that says we haven't been focusing enough on China. We, we, we took our eye off the ball by going to the Middle East and Afghanistan. Uh, is, is China, the rising China, is that going to be the new thing that focuses our mind in the same way the old Soviet Union did? Um, or, 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 or is there no consensus? Are we never going to be able to rebuild that consensus that existed during the Cold War? Well, one of the reasons that our international engagement has oscillated and been unpredictable is precisely 
because as you put it, Jim, the consensus has cracked. Yep. And it really, I think, began to unravel in 1994. Uh, and then it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And right now, there is no political center in yep. Congress uh, on domestic policy, but also on foreign policy. Democrats and Republicans live in alternative realities uh, on just about every policy issue. And that's why when, you, when power changes hands in the White House, there's whiplash mm -hmm. because statecraft goes from somebody who believes A to somebody who believes Z. Uh, and we've seen this now four times, right? From Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump and now Biden, well, who's next? Right? Our allies are beginning to say, this is a country that doesn't know what it's doing. And you know they, they may <laughs> be right. Um, do I think that China can restore the consensus? Well, if there is some bipartisanship here in the town that I live in, it's on China. It's on the need to stand up, to push back geopolitically, to push back politically on trade, on human rights. And I expect Biden to take a pretty tough line. I think there will be more continuity than change on China policy. Will it be enough to restore bipartisanship in an enduring way? To be honest with you right now, I don't think so. Uh, and that's because I think the, the, the partisan divide, uh, it, it looks to be extremely, extremely wide right now. And uh, I guess I would say that for me, we need to solve the internal underlying problems whether it's racial injustice, whether it is race issues in general, whether it's the culture wars, unemployment, stagnant wages. I'm a kind of believer in inside out. That is to say, we can't be, think that we can repair the country by saying, oh, China's coming to get us. We have to in, repair the country from the inside out. If we don't do that, we're never gonna get our foreign policy right, including our China policy, because we are gonna to be too divided. If we do fix our internal problems and we get our economy back up on its feet and we begin to rebuild bipartisanship and a center, I have every confidence that we will get our foreign policy right because we have seen in the past that that consensus is key to guiding a steady ship of state. I think it might have been Richard Haas who said security begins at home. I don't know if Richard was the one who started yeah, foreign that. Foreign policy begins at home. He wrote foreign a policy report. begins at home. Do you think that might be the basis for a Biden doctrine here? I, I think that it will be the basis for a Biden doctrine. It's happening before our eyes. Now, you know, my my friends in the in the Biden camp would say, hey, we can we can uh, walk and chew gum we can address an ambitious domestic agenda and go back to leading the world. And I think there's some truth to that. And we have already seen the US go back to being a team player. Mm -hmm. We have already seen the US go back to saying, we stand by our allies, whether in Asia or Europe or elsewhere. We believe in collective defense. We think you are our best friends, not our foes. And so the US is going back to a brand of leadership that many 
countries are. So how do you, how do you convince the American people that that kind of engagement in multilateralism is in the long-term interest of the United States? Well, I think that, that Americans understand the need for partnership. And if you look at public opinion polls, they believe in multilateralism and they believe in trade, that it's good for America. They just want better trade. Mm -hmm. The one thing where I think we will not see a return to the, to the, pre to the status quo ante is it will be multilateralism light. It will be informal. It will be compacts, steering groups, committees. Why? Because I don't think you could get any kind of serious treaty making done in the Senate. The Republican Party has really embraced a unilateralism that looks much more like 1919 than 1945. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, and we already saw this under Obama, whether it's the Paris Agreement or the Iran nuclear deal or other deals, you do it by executive agreement because you're not gonna be able to get two thirds of the Senate. I think we're gonna be in that boat for a very, a very long time. The one thing that I think that we will do is continue the pullback from the Middle East because I think the Americans have said as much, but I think that doing so will help us rebuild support for staying the course in Asia and in Europe. There, there uh, I'm gonna to try to wrap up two or three different questions uh, uh, at a time here since we're almost running uh, out of time. And there, there's one on the table from my friend, Frank, Frank Heitken. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's a very good question. You know, when do we know in this world, when do we know that our vital interests are at stake? You know, when do we know how to use force and when to use force, when to go to war? Uh, Frank points out that Roosevelt, you know, almost waited too long you know, before getting us in. And if it hadn't been for the Japanese, we might have waited too long. So how in this current environment, do you know the balance between force and statecraft, to quote uh, Alexander George here? How, how, do we, how do we calibrate that balance? Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, I'm kind of a meat and potatoes guy. Uh, <laughs> and by that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a believer in, in great power politics. And I think that one of the big mistakes that we've made is getting involved in wars of choice that have ground us down, right? The wars in the Middle East have cost over $6 trillion. We can't even get a 1.9 trillion package through Congress. Think about what 6 trillion could have done for the American economy. One of the reasons that we see internationalism dwindling is because there is this exhaustion of wars in the Middle East. So I would go back to the wisdom of the states, the states, uh, statesmen and the diplomats of the 40s and say, our main mission remains the same, to preserve peace among the great powers, to prevent the domination of large industrial heartland areas by a hostile power, and to be very careful about getting involved in areas of the strategic periphery in a military way. I'm a big fan of, of diplomacy and involvement and engagement, but we gotta stop fighting these land wars that just grind us down. And so I would go back to basics and keep a focus on big American national interests. And I think you're right, Jim, that Roosevelt waited too long. 
He stood by idly as fascism and Nazism overran Europe and overran Asia. That was a mistake. Yeah, that was actually Frank who suggested that. But I want to conclude with a couple of questions here. Uh, again, I know these are big ones and it's hard to answer them in two or three minutes. But the, one, of, one of the uh, questioners here is Al Dreskin, who says, you know, Hitler was, all, it was clear that he was engaging in a genocide, you know, and, and, mur and eventually would end up murdering millions of people. And, and the US sat by and, and we, we did nothing. So when, when do these kinds of enormous, you know, human rights issues, you know, when do you have to act on this? How do we know when to act? And what role should human rights play in our foreign policy? That's a, an extremely difficult one. <laughs> you know, I, 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 my take on, on US foreign policy historically is that human rights and concern about innocent loss of life is not enough to get us to go to war. Uh, and we've seen that in Rwanda, we've seen it in Somalia, we've seen it in East Timor, we now are witnessing it in, uh, with the Rohingyas in Myanmar. Uh, we, we've been told there's genocide going on in Xinjiang. We're certainly not, not gonna intervene in Xinjiang. And we're so, not gonna save the Uyghurs, no? Yeah, uh, you know, we, we, we may sanction people, we may have trade embargoes on products made in, in Xinjiang, but uh, uh, so, you know, it, it leaves us in a morally compromised position because we know that people are suffering. We know that atrocities are being committed. I guess my, you know, the best we can do is to try to put together packages of inducements and sticks, some of them military, to try to prevent these from happening. But I have to say that I found Libya to be instructive. We, we did implement what was called the responsibility to protect. We went into Libya to protect civilians in Benghazi, and it turned into a big mess. Libya is now a failed state full of extremists. So even when we go in with good intentions, sometimes it backfires. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I think we probably have reached the end of the program. I see Jim Falk coming back on the screen here. And you can see you know, what an extraordinary scholar uh, we have here in Professor Kupchin, and uh, we really want to thank him for leading us through this very complicated uh, issue and topic. Jim Falk. Well, uh, and, and indeed, thank you, Charlie and, and Jim. Thanks for uh, also lending your expertise and directing the conversation so beautifully. And I do want to remind everyone that they can purchase a copy of Isolationism by going to interrobangbooks.com. And uh, Thanks so much for joining us to pay tribute to someone who we loved and who meant so much to us. And uh, I know he is especially pleased with the conversation tonight because Mel Cusin wanted us to talk about difficult subjects that affected US foreign policy. And indeed, that's what happened this evening. Let me remind you that next week on Tuesday, February 2nd, we'll be having a conversation at noon with Luke Pete about his new book, How China Loses, The Pushback Against Chinese Global Ambitions. He's a senior research fellow at the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies. 
Thanks again for joining us. And if you'd like to support one of our programs, uh, just let us know. And if you're not yet a member of the World Affairs Council in Jim Al-Ad or the Tower Center or the American Jewish Institute, do look at, at all of our websites. We'd love to have you as a member and supporter. Have a great evening and stay safe.